the injuries that we're having. Maybe they're due to the fact that we're not running in the way that we're meant to run. There have been all kinds of changes in footwear from the early 70s until today, including uh, increasing cushioning, increasing, you know, motion control. I mean, now we've got, you know, Hoka's and we've got Brooks Beast. But if you look at running injuries, they haven't changed. If you do a search in PubMed on running, I-N-G-J-U-R, so you could get injury, injuries, and you look at that, it'll give you a histogram of the articles. And they start in 1970. Now we've been running for a way lot longer than that. Doesn't mean that there weren't any injuries but obviously there wasn't enough of injuries that it created this interest to write these articles and to do studies on it, right? Yeah. What happened in the 70s? What happened in the 70s, early 70s, is we went from running in shoes that are very much like these, these are a pair of minimal shoes, right? They were called plimsolls, they had a rubber bottom and they had a canvas top and that was it. Very low tech, two motion controlled and cushioned shoes. Now I'm not gonna say that they completely caused the problem, but it's interesting that it happened. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast from the Foot Collective. We're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so we can all explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. All right, we are recording. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast by the Foot Collective. My name is Nick, and today I have the honor of speaking with Irene Davis. So, Irene, welcome and thanks for being here. Hi, Nick. Thanks, and thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. Uh, it's not often that I get to talk to legends in the foot health space. So I'm uh, very excited to pick your brain, hear about the research you've got going on. And, um, you know, the audience for this is people that have joined the Foot Collective, sort of a global health community focused on foot health that are looking to just upgrade their foot health by making changes in their lives. And there's also a community of pros who listen to this. And so hopefully today's conversation can appeal to them both. And like I said, for people who are in the world of foot health, you're a legend, but for others who may not know you, um, can you just start by telling people a bit about yourself and what you do, uh, have it be as long or as short as you want, and then we can dive into some topics. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I am a, I started out in exercise science. Um, and went on to uh, get a degree in physical therapy and practiced as a physical therapist for a few years. Um, decided I, I needed to answer questions that kept coming up for me and decided to go on for a graduate degree. So I have a, a degree in a master's in biomechanics and a PhD in biomechanics. Um, so I, 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 I live in both, um, the space that I live in really is biomechanics and physical therapies. And I love that space because, you know, the, the physical therapy helps to generate questions and the biomechanics helps me to answer the questions. So really works together nicely. Um, I worked at, in a faculty, I was a faculty member at the University of Delaware for 20 years in a physical therapy curriculum or program um, and, and built a lab there and did a, a large part of my research there. And then um, I moved on to Harvard University, Harvard Medical School to develop a center. It was the Spalding National Running Center. I, I founded it and it was really, again, I had a clinic and a research lab and the clinic generated the questions, the research lab helped to answer it. And again, it was that sort of interaction, that integration that was so, I, I felt really powerful. Um, and I was there for about 11 years, and I am now at the University of South Florida, 
back in a physical therapy program. I really missed my profession because um, I was in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. So um, this was a great opportunity for me to um, help mentor junior faculty um, and do research and again, be, be back into uh, Department of Physical Therapy. I am in the process of developing a clinic like I did up north um, so that I can start to see patients again, because I've always seen patients throughout my entire career, and I love it. It's really what motivates me and motivates my research. Amazing. And I love how you, you know, you, the pairing of seeing people in person generates the questions and doing the research helps to answer them. I think that's such a refreshing uh, thing to hear, because I think too often we silo working with people and then doing research. And sometimes that slight disconnect can actually result in less practical application or less real life verification of whether this research result is actually meaningfully applicable and can actually help people. So I think that's awesome and quite the, me quite the journey to be where you are today. And congratulations on the new position and the new Thank lab you. starting. Um, I'd love to know how and when you got interested in feet, right? You started it as a physical therapist and when did the focus shift towards the body part that touches the ground? Um, and maybe we'll start with that. And I'd love to hear your take on, you know, how do we have such a weird relationship with feet? I'd love to hear your, uh, sort of perspective on that, but maybe let's start with when did it start? When did you start being interested in feet and why? Right. So interestingly, um, in my doctoral work, I, I was at Penn State University and I was with, um, I, I went there because of Dr. Peter Kavanaugh, who was a pioneer in the area of running biomechanics. Um, and so that's really where my interest in feet started. And my, my doctoral dissertation was really studying the relationship between how the foot mechanics affect knee mechanics and in particular, how excessive pronation affects the patellofemoral joint and the, and the knee joint in general. So I started my, my interest really started there. I've always had an interest in lower extremity mechanics and injury. And most of my work has focused on the knee and the, and the foot, although the hip is also intimately involved with all of that. Um, but my focus at that time, in fact, my doctoral dissertation was looking at the relationship between uh, the foot and the knee. And then also how does how do orthotics, how do foot orthotics affect that? Um, and I, you know, was in this mindset, and this is kind of how a lot of physical therapists are taught, at, at least back then, that, you know, there's some feet that need motion control and some feet need cushioning and some feet that, you know, cannot, cannot really tolerate the loads of walking and running by themselves and need orthotics, right? When I moved from that position to the University of Delaware, I was the person who taught orthotics. Um, if anyone needed orthotics, I was one that casted them and adjusted the orthotics and took care of those patients. Um, I taught it in the curriculum and I taught my students motion control, cushioning and neutral shoes. Um, and I did that for quite some time until I sort of had an epiphany, um, which we can talk about maybe later. But that that was really where my interest came in. And, um, and I've really evolved a lot. People who I taught back then who've been to my seminars recently are like, oh my gosh, you've made a 180 degree change. Why? And so it's interesting that, you know, you can make those kind of changes in your life and in your career. Yeah. I think, um, what's that? I think it's an Einstein quote. The marker of intelligence is the ability to change our mind. Yes. And I think so. I think if we're curious and we're using ourselves as our sort of you know, end of one experiment, um, 
we need to be able to reserve the right to change our minds as soon as better information presents. And I think sometimes there's a lot of momentum uh, in the world of, you know, healthcare or how we treat disease where there's almost like a reluctance. And I think part of that has to do with the business incentives. Like we designed this whole business model around the way that we currently do things. And I think at a certain point, even when new information presents itself, there's like this friction barrier to, well, I don't, I might know a, a different way of doing things, but I don't, my whole practice is oriented and designed around doing this. So it's really hard or inconvenient for me to change my mind. Um, and what was the epiphany moment? What was the light bulb moment? Yeah. And, and I would love to know how, how, how does how you were taught about feet differ from how you currently view feet? Okay. Well, I'll talk about sort of the epiphany and it wasn't really an epiphany moment. It was an evolution of thought. Hmm. So when I was at uh, Penn State with my advisor, Peter Kavanaugh, he had done a study and noticed it was just running mechanics, but he had some of the people that he had studied, and there were only a few, were forfeit strikers. And he noticed that forfeit strikers, when you look at their ground reaction forces, don't have a typical impact peak. There's a propulsive peak in the vertical ground reaction force, but there's this impact peak that heel strikers have. And it was considered normal mechanics. And then these people came along, a few of them who were forfeit strikers, and they didn't have it. And he kind of thought that was interesting, but he felt like those were the outliers. So I was really interested in that. I wanted to know if this was characteristic of all forfeit strikers. So I, one of the early studies that I did was looking at the relationship between rearfoot strikers and forfeit strikers. And indeed, we did see that consistently forfeit strikers don't have that impact peak. At the same time, um, a paper by DeWitt on barefoot running came out. And basically, he showed that people who are barefoot runners tend to land on the ball of their foot. Um, and this was in the early 2000s, before the big born to run, that whole that whole sort of craze. But um, he just noticed that. And I started to think about that and think, you know, barefoot runners, we, we evolved to run barefoot. Barefoot runners don't land on their heel primarily. They land on the ball of their foot. Um, and when you land on the ball of your foot, there's no impact. And impact forces have been related to injuries. Um, and it had been, it, there were some studies done by Raiden back in the 70s, looking at impact loading on rabbit tibians, showing that it led to stress fractures. So I just, I really, because I was really interested in this link between mechanics and injuries, it started me down that path of, you know, forefoot striking and maybe barefoot running and kind of started me in that direction. Um, and then it just went from there. You know, we, I had um, Chris McDougall was living not far from the University of Delaware, about 45 minutes away in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And he came down as a journalist from the New York Times. So he was a, um, uh, basically wanted to do a story on some problems he had been having with his feet and he'd kind of transitioned to running without shoes or barefoot running, or at least in minimal shoes. He wanted me to do like for, for the story, cause he was a freelance journalist. He wanted me to do this, this assessment of him running with shoes and without shoes and forward strike, all that. And so it kind of started what's been a long relationship with, with Chris. Um, and it, interestingly enough, he did the story in the New York times, but about another year or two later, I had a friend who was taking train down to DC and they happened to pick up the book Born to Run and said, Irene, you're in this book. I didn't know that. And I, <laughs> I didn't know it either. So I didn't really appreciate that, that he was had a lot of this sort of in his mind about kind of writing this book. But that really kind of sparked, I think, this interest that really was kind of 
germinating with me anyways about this barefoot and forfeit striking. And, you know, and then I start thinking about it and thinking that, you know, shoes, another study came out at that same time um, that it was by Joe Knappick, who is from the military. And it was a very large scale meta-analysis of combination of a few studies he'd done before, put them all together, people from the army, the Navy, the uh, Air Force. And he actually had two groups of, um, he divided people into two groups. One group, he looked at their foot and if they had a high arched, he gave them a high arched stiff foot, gave them a cushion shoe, which is the way we were taught to prescribe. If they had a low arch and were pronated, he gave them a motion control shoe. And if they had a neutral arch, he gave them a neutral shoe. The other group, regardless of their foot um, structure, he gave them all a neutral shoe. And he monitored them for injuries with the idea that if shoes are really prescribed to prevent injuries, then you would think that the group that had the shoe prescribed more closely to their foot type would have less injuries and there was no difference. There was no difference in every study he did and there was no difference when he put all of them together. So it just starts to fly in the face of this, you know, getting someone on a treadmill and looking at how they run and, you know, this prescription that goes on still goes on in shoe um, stores across the country today. Uh, and again, that kind of added to the, it was really data. It's the kind of data that sort of moved me in that direction. And um, and I just became really interested in, in um, you know, maybe the injuries that we're having because maybe, maybe they're not due to, um, maybe they're due to the fact that we're not running in the way that we're meant to run, right? So there've been all kinds of changes in footwear from the early seventies until today, including uh, increasing cushioning, increasing, um, you know, motion control. I mean, now we've got, you know, Hoka's and we've got Brooks Beasts and, you know, and so, but not, but if you look at running injuries, they haven't changed, right? And running injuries actually started to increase. If you do a search in PubMed on running, I-N-J-U-R, so you could get injury, injuries, and you look at that, it'll give you a histogram of the articles. And they start in 1970. Hmm. Now, we've been running for a way lot longer than that. Doesn't mean that there weren't any injuries, but obviously there wasn't enough of injuries that it created this interest to write these articles and to do studies on it. Right. What happened in the seventies? What happened in the seventies, early seventies is we went from running in shoes that are very much like these, these are a pair of minimal shoes, right? Very much like these, they were called plimsolls. They had a rubber bottom and they had a canvas top and that was it. Um, They were low tech. Right. Very low tech, very minimal, right. To, motion control to cushion shoes. Now I'm not going to say that they caused completely caused the problem, but it's interesting that it happened at that time, right? Now, what happened at that moment? We had um the running boon. That's exactly when that happened. So now instead of people who have been trained to run like either on high school teams, collegiate teams or or um club sports, right? Now we have the average Joe Schmo recreational runners wanting to get out there, get off the couch and run, which is great, except that they were running, they started running in the same running flats that these people had been trained in, but they weren't trained to run. And so, for example, a couple of things that happened, um, there was, uh, because we had been walking around typically in like two inch heels, you know, regular shoes have some heel to it. There's a heel to toe drop. And now you put them in a flat. So people were starting to develop Achilles tendinopathy. Achilles problems. So what did they do? 
they added a heliocentric drop in it, right? And then they also noticed, and just I should preface this by saying that Nike actually brought in three um, consultants. There were three sports podiatrists who see a lot of these runners, and they paid them to come in and tell them, what do you think? Why are we seeing these injuries? And this is what they were saying. Achilles seeing Achilles tendinopathy because of this uh, fact that they're they're dropped more now when they're running on flats, um, impact related injuries because they don't really can't cushion they don't they haven't taught their bodies how to cushion this is what I think, um, and 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 also pronatory things are related to excessive pronation because they're not controlling that landing right running is different than walking walking you never come down on one foot alone you always have one foot or two feet on the ground. Running, the definition is that you have a flight phase and you're coming down with two and a half times your body weight instead of 1.2, all on one foot. And you've got to really be able to attenuate that load. And that takes muscular activity, right? So rather than adapt the runner to the sport, which is what people had been doing up until this point, they adapted the shoe to the runner. They said, okay, we'll, 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 we'll take out that lift. We'll, we'll put a heel to toe drop in. We'll add cushioning. We'll add motion control. What does that do? It ends up decondi- further deconditioning those muscles because they don't have to work as hard, right? I think if we had actually adapted the runner to the sport and kept them in the minimal shoes, I, would, I hypothesize that we would not have half the injuries that we have today. I agree that a lot of injuries are, are related to training and pro- improper training, but I really believe a lot of it has to do with footwear because it also changes the way that we run. And, and so we're now moving away from the way our bodies were adapted to move. And my, the, the tenet of my research and the way I treat people in, in the clinic is that the closer we are to the way that we were adapted to move, the less our risk for injury, Right. That's such an important principle, and it really does flip a lot of the highly complex intervention-focused approach on its head to say, actually, we need to subtract, right? We need to subtract the things that are getting in the way of us moving naturally instead of adding more things to deal with whatever unnatural adaptations have developed. And I know Daniel Lieberman is someone you worked with, and I love his quote and um, hold it very close where he said something like, how you run is far more important than the shoes you wear, but the shoes you wear affect how you run. And this notion that, you know, often when I was treating patients, especially runners, I would talk about how, like you said, running involves literally leaping from one leg to the other. And in order to absorb those impact forces, you have to be able to coordinate this beautiful dance of the lower extremity to use your natural machinery to absorb and actually store the energy so that you can re-release it. And when we skip, I would often get people skipping like jump rope and I would get them to do a barefoot and I would ask them, do you think you're ever going to do it landing and taking back off on your heels? And they would say, no, I would never do that. Of course. And I was like, why? Well, because you're not storing any energy. You're not absorbing anything. You're smashing this solid area into the ground. And so if we don't do it with that, we shouldn't do it when we run. And it seemed like to me, the only reason people had permission to do that when running which is almost, you know, I would often quote Barney Rubble. Barney Rubble wants to put the brakes on. He puts his heels down into the ground, slows the car down. Why would you want to put the brakes on when you're trying to run forward? And this notion that the only reason we're allowed to do that without getting heel pain is because there's a a slab of cushioning. And I think this well-intentioned at the time technology that we've added to our shoes ends up actually making us run inefficiently despite us being sold 
that these are the better shoes for running. Like even the term running shoes, it's like, I prefer just saying shoes for running, which any shoe that aligns with physiology is a good shoe to run in if you're capable and trained with the capacity to do that. And I think, like you said, that's where the mismatch is. Um, and have you seen a change? Like, okay, so you have this insight, you're starting to get all these data points, kind of putting together a clear picture. Do you ever get frustrated that we're still in the phase of prescribing at large and most people still run in highly cushioned shoes? Like, does it, do you ever get frustrated knowing what you know and then seeing what's actually happening? Yeah. I, um, I try not to get frustrated, but I am constantly trying to brainstorm how we get this message across in my own community, in the biomechanics community, in the clinical community and in the biomechanics community, there's a division between mm. people who believe that it's fine to run in shoes and land on your heels. And, you know, you shouldn't change people. You shouldn't, you shouldn't transition them to forfeit striking. It's, it's, it's amazing what division there is there. And some of it comes from, I think, again, people are dug into their dogma and yeah. you're invested in it. Now you're so invested in it. You can't let go of it. Um, some of it is, um, I think just fear because, you know, there was this movement back in 2009, 2010, when people jumped into this footwear and just thought that it's just a shoe, right? It's not, it's not, but it's not just a shoe. It's a whole different activity. It's a greater, there's greater demand from the knee down, primarily medial side of the, the lower leg and the bottom surface. So we're talking about your intrinsic muscles, your posterior tip, things are on the medial side, the calf as well, posterior calf, right? But it's mostly knee down that these, these, so you have to then, you have to prepare it. You have to let the body adapt to it. You wouldn't go to the gym and lift a hundred pounds when you've never lifted before you'd get injured. And when you get injured, nobody would say, don't do it again. What they would say is don't do it that way. And I've spent the last decade saying, don't do it that way. And I think that got us into a lot of trouble. And so people don't want PTs, don't want to risk it because they don't want to, don't want someone to get a, a metatarsal stress fracture. I mean, and I understand it, but really it's no different than anything else that we do activity wise. So yeah. I really, I, I feel like it's, it's a very simple answer to a lot of issues. And yet, how do we get that across? Is it research? Is it more research? Now, of course, I'm going to be doing more research because it's my passion. But do we do we need to do a better job of marketing it, right? And making it very, you know, flashy and acceptable and cool to be in those kind of shoes, right? We need to get to kids. We need to start it with kids. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're not going to, I've resolved myself to the fact that um, the, the footwear companies are never going to let go of their technology. They have invested way too much money and way too much time. And, um, they have very deep pockets. They're never going to say, you know what, we should really let go of this and go to minimal shoes. Cause they could, they could all make minimal shoes and, but they won't. Um, and you know, we've got things now where the technology is adding to the system. Right. So we do know that. I mean, it is true that there is an increase in performance with some of these, not for all people, but elite runners in particular um, do seem to have an increase, a beneficial um, increase in their performance when they wear these 4% shoes, for example. Right. My question is, in terms of performance, when does it stop? 
When do you you get to put jet engines? You get to put jet propulsion into the midsole? When does it stop? And when does it become not the runner who's who's up on the podium? And I've had people, Stefan Berman, who is um, in world athletics, basically said, I want the people up on the podium because of their performance and not because of technology. And what's interesting is that they tried to do this with with the uh, swimsuits. Do you remember that? When they tried to make them really more, and they actually, they were, they were uh, disqualified. Those kind of swimsuits were disqualified. Why can't we do that with the footwear companies? Because I think they've got really deep pockets. Um, Yeah. And I think it has to start with educated. I think it actually has to start with pros. And we're actually working right now on like a, a white paper, which aims to crystallize the first principles of why this is a truth into a paper that is like academic format, but not insanely technical, like yeah. could be grasped by an average person. So we're making it kind of a collective effort at Soul, at um, the Foot Collective and a company I work for in Canada called Soul That's Freedom. That's great. And, and the goal is to have a huge amount of people be able to read it and offer feedback and iterate and improve it together so that we can get like a, a, consensus that this makes sense. This aligns with first principles of physiology. This aligns with what we're seeing in clinic and have people either co-author by adding bits or endorse it by saying, I'm seeing this and this is true and have it just be a publicly available paper that anyone can read and hopefully create kind of a best practices guideline that actually simplifies things. It doesn't need to be more technical or more complex. Um, but with the runners, I often had this conversation with runners and it was almost like this decision where it's like, you can keep wearing this shoe and really not meaningfully improve the issue you're coming to see me for, because you're not going to be able to change your technique if you don't get rid of what's allowing you to adopt that technique. Um, so you can keep doing that and kind of trying to put patchwork on this injury, or you can basically rebuild your running technique from scratch, rebuild basic conditioning and muscles that you're not currently using. Um, and have a longer, more sustainable running career, but you have to take a bunch of steps back and start over in order to uh, have a sustainable running career and have better lower body health. And it's a tough trade-off, right? Because most people it's like, well, I need to run because that's what keeps my mental health together or that's my outlet or I have a race. And there's always something, right? Where it's like, it almost seemed like people have to get to a point where running is being taken away from them in order for them to have you know, the space to be like, you know what, I do have to change this. And, you know, I am willing to start over because I, I don't really have another option. And I think once those people go to the shoe companies and say, I'm not buying your shoes with cushioning anymore because I actually know it's it's not serving me, only then will shoe companies change. They're not going to do it voluntarily. And I think if the pros can educate the runners and the runners can vote that they want natural footwear with their wallets, only then will it change. And I think it is changing, but it's it seems slow, but it seems like in the past year or two, there's like this opening where it's gaining momentum. At least that's what I'm seeing. So lots of, lots of thoughts on that. Um, I think, um, first off it's, it's really difficult when you have shoes that are going to increase performance to convince pros who are competing against other pros who are wearing those shoes, they're making them faster to not use those shoes. That's a really hard sell. Um, to your point about it takes them running, being taken away from them. So I saw about a thousand runners at the Spalding National Running Center and our, I'll tell you what our approach was. Our approach was exactly what you said. Um, I, and I sat down and I educated them and they had to be willing to take, it's six months to a year really to get back to where you were 
And that's, yeah. you know, that's a year if you're thinking about a marathon, probably, right? So it depends on what level they wanted to run at. Um, but they had to be willing to step back. We did basic strengthening of the core, like foot core, lumbo pelvic core. Glutes are really often weak in these runners and they don't use them. Um, so we had to build. So our program was a pre-gate program that had, was usually about at least two months of strengthening to, to tone up the areas of the body that we felt really need to based on our, our complete assessment. Um, and then the second phase of it was gait retraining. And the gait retraining involves providing them real-time feedback, whether it be a mirror, whether it be IMUs on their impacts, whether it be EMG to try to get them to activate a muscle or calm a muscle, whether it be video cameras from the back so you can see lean or side, depending on what it was, but they got that feedback on a regular basis and then it was gradually removed. And that process was about three times a week for four weeks. So 12 sessions of gait retraining. During that time, we don't let them to run outside at all because we are trying to, that motor pattern will always be there for the old pattern. We're trying to develop a new one and reinforce it enough. And then after they did that, so now we're talking two months and another, that's three months right there, right? Then they went out to a 10-week program, outside program, that started them at only 20 minutes of running and built up to 60 minutes of running over 10 weeks. Um, and we gave them, we prescribed to them the number of miles they could run and even the intensity at which they could run. Um, so now we're talking another 10 weeks, let's say another three months, that's six months right there to get them to run an hour. And even then they may not be running as fast as they can run because we ask them to try not, to, we start to increase the speed a little bit throughout those 10 weeks, but you really need to let your body adapt to it. And then they have to continually run and practice and intensify their running and use hills and all the other aspects of training that they need to incorporate. That takes a commitment. And the people that I have found that are willing to do that are the people who've been injured. So when they're, and I have had some, some high level people like a top hundred finisher of the marathon, that kind of thing in Boston marathon be willing, but it's only because they were out because of injury and you have to kind of get past the injury as well. So it is, the problem is we are in a society where we want things quick. If you can give me an injection and give me a pair of orthotics and do this and I can run, at least for the short term, uh, I'm, that's where I am. And especially if they're being paid to run. So it's a very tough challenge. My favorite, not that I would work with anyone. I love all runners, but my favorite runners are the ones that are serious recreational runners because they are willing to, to listen. They're willing, they're not being paid. They don't have the demands. They're willing to take the time if they need to take the time. Um, so it's, you're absolutely right. It's, it is a challenge when you're, when you're faced with that. We wanted to take a quick break from the episode to let you know about our ultimate free foot health resource. If you're listening, you've probably already started the journey towards improving your foot and movement health, but if you're still wearing conventional shoes most of the time, that's anything cushioned, heeled, narrow or rigid, it's kind of like taking one step forward and two steps back. Knowing what shoe is right for you though can be super confusing. That's why we made the Guide to Foot Freedom. We've taken everything our team of foot health experts have learned over the years and synthesized it into one handy manual, packed with all you need to know about unleashing the natural power of your foundation. You'll learn how to understand your feet, the truth about modern footwear, the five F's for finding natural footwear, 
plus a step-by-step -step guide with training videos to help you assess your foot function and improve it so you can safely and seamlessly transition into shoes that will finally give your feet freedom. The best part is, like I said, it's absolutely free. Just head to thefootcollective.com and click learn to find the free ebook, The Guide to Foot Freedom. You'll find the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Yeah, and I think a long-term, like health is a long game. Being able it to is. do any activity sustainably over a lifetime is requires a long-term mindset. And I think, like you said, I think the current way we treat disease uh, really feeds into the instant gratification short-term mindset because I, I, I think that people fundamentally, if they're given the right information, they will make wise choices and only they can make the choice. There's no good or bad. There's only trade-offs. And as long as people are given accurate information, they can make the best decision for them. I think at any sport at the elite level, there is automatically going to be a health trade-off and longevity trade-off if you want to compete at the elite level. I think athletes know that. But I think if people were given a balanced weighing where it's like, okay, you have this foot pain, I can give you this injection, and you're probably going to be able to run tomorrow and the day after. But in the long term, this might actually weaken your tissues and might give you more problems, right? If they were given the second half of that with equal weighting and emphasis, I think it would at least make people think a bit more and sort of have a, be able to make a wiser choice. And yeah, it is a, it's a tough thing to sell someone to basically say, you're running at this level, you have to go back down to square one and learn to walk again and build basic conditioning in your feet. And, you know, I think everyone who runs in natural shoes and gets super excited, myself included, does too much the first time. And my calves were blasted after 20 minutes of running. And I realized actually, it, it, and I think it's like, when that happens, there's two mindsets to take. Number one, I shouldn't be doing this. This is not good for my body. It hurts. Right. Number two, I actually never used my calves before running and I know I'm supposed to be. So I just need to pull back and sort of self-regulate. I think auto-regulation is something we don't teach often enough. And I think people can just be so empowered if they're given, you know, uh, the confidence to say like, if it hurts or something doesn't feel right, you have to be okay stepping back a little bit or stepping down or reducing your load or intensity. And again, requires a long-term mindset. So yeah. And runners are just a different breed of human. I they mean, are. they're some of the they most are. resilient. I mean, it all sounds very reasonable. And I've always yeah. taken that approach and there's still people that decide that they, they, they just can't wait. And yeah. I, and I, I respect it. It's, it's a personal decision. So yes, education is really important. I keep in, in my clinic, I had a drawer of articles and I would pull one out and I would show them. Um, and it's how I developed the trust within the physicians that I work with, because I would send them, I'd let them read the articles yep. and show them that even walking in minimal shoes causes increase in foot strength. I mean, we learned that through our research and we incorporated that immediately into the way that we practice. So before we even started our runners running, we, we gave, got them into minimal shoes. It was part of the program and they walked in the minimal shoes because that's going to build the foundation that we need before they start running. Yeah. And you touched on it before this notion that the hip is intricately connected to the foot yes. and ankle, the whole, you know, that was one, that's one section in this white paper where we need to start treating the lower body system as an integrated system where one element can't be optimized in isolation. Because I remember, you know, in my early days as a physical therapist, treating the ankle in isolation or the foot, and you'd make some progress, but it would inevitably be sort of limited in the end. And looking back, I realized you know, if you don't have the chair conversation, if you don't have the whole, if you don't treat the whole lower body as an integrated system that is inseparable in terms of all the individual parts, 
it's so hard to make meaningful progress. So, you know, how do you, you know, if someone comes in to see you and they have a foot problem or a knee problem, um, how do you help them sort of zoom out a bit and view the whole lower body as a system? And is that something that is, you know, top of mind or regularly talked about in your, in your clinical practice? So during our evaluation, we have them run on a treadmill. We do an instrumented treadmill assessment, which I know a lot of clinics don't have. You could probably substitute that with some IMUs just to get a sense of the impacts. Um, but we also have them, um, so we do that in, in the lab and then we bring them into the clinic and we have them run on the treadmill and we have them try some things because I want to know whether, cause you know how it is, you try you say, does this make it better or worse? So we'll have them run and some people will have foot pain. They come in with foot pain and I'll ask them because I'll see that their knees are coming in. They've got increased hip adduction or a valgus or knock need um, mm-hmm. sort of position. And I'll get them to activate their glutes, to squeeze your glutes, right? And you can see their knees come apart and you can see them, the patellas rotating a little more forward, a little bit of space between the knees. And, their pain, and I'll ask them for their pain level of their feet and it'll go down. Not surprisingly, because the glutes bear, I mean, they're the largest muscle in the, in the lower extremity. And they're really important for the foot as well as the knee. Um, and I've had the same experience with people with knee pain. Once they activate their glutes and the glutes start to get involved, so it's so important and they see it. They're like, oh my gosh, wow. And I'm not, I might take it from a four to a three, like immediately, but it tells me that four out of 10 versus three out of 10 is what I meant. But it yep. tells me that we're going in the right direction, right? And that, 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 and it shows them how important the whole lower extremity is working in concert to your point. Yeah, we do this. Um... We call it hip torque. It's like this little assessment that gives people an aha moment. People come in, they're like, I got flat feet. I I don't have an arch. And we get them to plant their feet on the ground like they're glued, push their knees out to the sides, which activates the hip. And they see their arch come up and they're just shocked. Usually they're like, and it's like the hip, the idea that the hip is the master control for foot and knee positioning is oftentimes lost when we're so, I guess, uh, you know, microscopically focused on the area of problem or how things look when we kind of lose touch with sometimes how things function holistically. Um, and you know, I often find it strange that, you know, we know so many of these principles, uh, with the rest of the body, right? Like we know that if someone has neck pain, you don't really want to prescribe a neck brace that they're in for the rest of their lives. That wouldn't make sense, right? You want to move it and load it within their tolerance and build strength, resilience, capacity. And yet we treat feet as these fundamentally different uh, like this body part that abides by a different set of principles somehow. And I think, you know, I don't know why, like for somewhere that's so important. And this often, I kind of think about this sometimes. It's like, it's our first point of contact for, to the ground. It's our primary sensor for locomotion. It's essential for independent locomotive ability. And yet our feet are some of the most misunderstood and ignored area on the entire body. Do you have uh, any thoughts on that? Like, how did it get to that point and why yeah. does it remain that? It's a really good point. I think that um, I think that from I can tell you from a biomechanics standpoint, the foot was always modeled as like initially as one block, like there was no movement in it. It's just it's just a piece. It's just solid. It's a solid, rigid body. It's just one segment, right? The foot, which we know has twenty six bones, uh, thirty three articulations, each with six degrees of freedom of motion, and all the muscles. Right? We know it's not a rigid body at all, right? So biomechanists have always thought of it that way. I think from cl- from the clinical standpoint, some of that might come from a lack of understanding, but I think there's been a huge lack of appreciation of those four layers of intrinsic foot muscles that we have. And the reason I say this 
is that if you're a PT, uh, the last clinical practice guidelines that came out on plantar fasciitis, right? They basically talk about all kinds of, you know, ultrasound and night splints and, you know, mobilization and all these things to treat plantar fasciitis, shockwave therapy, but not strengthening. Strengthening was not included as one of the recommendations, right? And, and, and what does that tell you? I mean, every other clinical practice guideline, biceps tendonitis, patellar tendonitis, ankle sprains, they're always going to talk about strength. That is, I was sitting around a, a fire pit at the International Foot and Ankle Symposium with some athletic trainers. So Pat McKeon, uh, Jay Hertel, and um, there was a little bit of bourbon involved. I always say that because we were sort of sipping on bourbon, but I was lamenting that my profession didn't appreciate it. And then that's actually what kind of pr- pr- promoted or, or, or developed this idea of writing this paper about the foot core. That came from that sitting around that pit, that fire pit. And we wanted to make the analogy that there's a core in the foot, like the lumbopelvic core. And that it's analogous in that there are the muscles of the foot core are small. They've got small cross-sectional areas, so they don't generate a lot of force. They don't have large moment arms. They don't generate a lot of torque, but they are very important for stabilization, just like the small lumbopelvic muscles. Um, and that paper... We actually invited Dennis Bramble, who's an evolutionary biologist, onto the paper as well. That paper got a ton of downloads, and mm-hmm. I feel like it helped. And that was our purpose, was to try to raise the awareness of how yeah. important these muscles are. And now when I talk to, pe- to, to, to patients, I get them contacting me a lot and asking about things. And a lot of them will say that they have done some foot core exercises, which makes me really happy because it means that PTs are starting to understand and appreciate how important those muscles are. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think it's just that people, you know, we did, you don't, they're small, you don't see them. It's not like a bicep or quad or even some of the, the, the muscles of the back, you don't see them. They're tiny, they're under the foot. And so you just kind of forget about them. And yet they're so important in that, because you're right. It's the first contact with the ground. I, I think it's changing. I hope it's changing. I think it is too. And sometimes I can't help but think that out of sight, out of mind is part of this where like yeah. people actually, one time I, it hit me because of a patient interaction. I was like, people don't even look down and think they have feet. They just have shoes because that's right. all they see. And so, and, and feet are these stinky, gross things because they're put in shoes. So I think that's part of like this, there's like this cultural hesitation to approach feet as like part of the body that deserves respect. But I think when it hits people of how important feet are, the people who I worked with that understood the importance was when they had a foot injury that stopped them from doing anything they wanted to do. Then they realized, oh, wow, I can sprain my finger, stub my finger, fracture my finger. I'm going to be okay. I'll still be able to do my groceries. I'll still be able to. It's like if I screw one of my feet up, I really have a hard time living life functionally. And I think that's when it hits people. Um, But it really... Yeah, I think it is changing. Like I'm talking to, you know, we talked to Vivo Barefoot. Uh, I talked to other health professionals and it's, you know, the goal with this, you know, again, this white paper is literally just awareness. It's like bring it into people's awareness in a very simple way to say, if you ignore the foot, you're actually missing out on a giant low hanging fruit where people, their whole movement um, diet can be enriched by just giving them a more, realistic and unmanipulated perspective of the ground 
And I think sometimes the foot is almost this governor to, to what the brain can do with the rest of the lower body, where it's like if the hip can't get the right information from the foot, the immediate default is, well, don't let this human do as much because we don't know what's going on down there and we need to protect this person. And the amount of people that I've worked with that had hip mobility issues and unlocked their feet and actually started to feel the ground, all of these hip restrictions sometimes shocked me at how fast they disappeared. It was almost like, it's not something you got to grind through and reopen up. It's almost like there was a, there was a nervous system governor on what you're allowed to do with your hips. And you just opened that up and took it away by letting your feet actually sense the ground. So I think it's just every health professional treats people and patients that wear shoes. And the idea that 95% of people are wearing shoes that mess their feet up creates this giant window of opportunity where just mentioning natural footwear can actually have such a big return on, on investment sort of thing. So I'm excited. You know, I think, I think PTs, and this is something I encourage when I teach in, in teach PTs, our students is that you need to take your shoes off when you treat yep. and you need your patients to take your shoes off. Even if you're treating a neck injury, because the way that you walk can affect anything all the way up the chain. And so if you, if you teach them to take their shoes off from the minute they walk in and you're starting to treat it and you take yours off, because if you want to show them something, you want to show example. them with your feet, right? Yeah. So that's, I mean, the minute they walk in, we take our shoes off, they take their shoes off and, and it kind of brings that, that kind of awareness to the foot. So I, I would agree with that. Yeah. We used to treat barefoot in the clinic and it, it was amazing what, you know, without any direction whatsoever, the permission people had to then take their shoes off, right? right. Where it's not weird to be barefoot. That's the norm. It's weird to be wearing shoes inside, exactly. <laughs> you know, make naked feet the norm again. Um, I want to be sensitive with your time. We've got seven minutes left. I'd love to hear you're in an elevator with someone. They're wearing wacky shoes. They see your natural shoes. They're very different. Um, they ask you, you know, what kind of shoes should I be wearing? What is your simplified way of explaining the type of shoes humans should be wearing and why? I'd love to hear your take. Um, I would tell them that they should wear shoes that allow their feet to do everything they're supposed to do. And that when you wear shoes with, that have high heels or you wear shoes that have cushioning or you wear shoes that have extra support or you wear shoes that don't conform to the shape of the foot, then you're limiting the foot. And when you don't use it, you lose it. Um, and that the way to the healthiest feet are to allow the foot to act the way it should act, the way it's, it, it's adapted to be. That's what I would Amazing. tell them. Yeah. And I, we've again, to... the closer we are to the way that we are adapted to move, the less the risk for injury. Agreed. And I think the beauty sometimes is that you actually, I found it more important to tell people the things to protect themselves from and subtract than to tell them what to add. Because yeah. if you do a good job being clear and concise on the, it's like if you tell people to subtract unnatural shoes that in, that inhibit natural foot function um, and give them a, sort of like a heuristic of what unnatural shoes look like, frankly, it doesn't matter what kind of shoes they wear as long as they're not unnatural shoes. And I think the options on the market and the, the styles and brands that are making shoes that are more visually acceptable within sort of the cultural norm are getting exponentially more and more over time, more companies, more styles, more fashionable natural footwear compared to, you know, when I started in 2015, it was like, you really had to search long and hard to find a shoe that, that fit that bill. And, you know, it might've been five fingers. It was usually something that looked very different. Right. And now it's almost, 
you know, you can almost find shoes that are indistinguishable and very subtly different, but are flat, flexible, uh, you know, have a thin sole and are actually shaped like human feet. And I think the, the term natural footwear and unnatural footwear helps to move through some of the chaff of, you know, minimal or, um, barefoot or all these terms that can kind of be muddied a little bit. And it really boils down to help people understand what to look for in a shoe so that they can judge every shoe they buy and hopefully shift more on the continuum towards, you know, a natural shoe that allows that. It, it's just so ironic that shoes started off as things to protect our feet. And now they are the primary thing damaging our feet. Exactly. And that's a big, you know, that's a big opportunity. It seems like. Exactly. There's a lot. I mean, you mentioned women's shoes. There's a lot, a lot of um, flats now that are out there that are that that really could qualify as a natural or minimal shoe. Um, the other thing I like to do is I like to give um, women um, the, the 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 knowledge that they can wear high heels. You know, you're allowed to wear high heels. You're probably not going to wear them very long. None of us ever do. We wear them to the wedding and then we take them off and we have our flip flops in the, you know, in our bag. Um, but, you know, it's not like I think you just if you become too strict one way, then it, I think it, it's also not accepted. So, yes, if you want to wear high heels, go for it. Just don't wear them all the time. Um, and you're probably not going to want to wear them. I mean, honestly, when people get into minimal shoes, they, they kind of tend to move away from wearing high heels, but I think it helps to, to make that message that it's, you're allowed to do that, right. If you want to. Um, and, but I, but again, I think women have a lot of women are the ones that really have more of a, uh, resistance against different kinds of footwear much more than men do. And so you have to kind of work with them a little bit differently, I think, but I, I agree. Yeah. Um, two final quick questions. Number one, what are you researching and looking into right now? Like what's piquing your interest and what are you focused on in your current research? And then the second question is if a health professional is listening to this, uh, and they don't really do anything about feet, they don't really assess them. They don't talk about footwear, you know, words of wisdom for the aspiring physical therapist who wants to do better and learn better, but doesn't really know where to start. So first, what are you working on? Second, what would you tell a health professional listening to this? Okay. Well, I don't want to say too much about what I'm working on because it's a randomized control trial and you have to be careful. Um, but we are, we do have a randomized control trial in which we're looking at plantar fasciitis. Nice. Um, I'll say that. Um, the things that I would like to work on, some of the ideas I'm working on right now is I really, I know that minimal shoes result, every single study has shown that they result in foot strengthening of the intrinsic muscles. I want to look at bone now and see whether they have an impact on bone because I think that they will have a positive impact on bone. So that's kind of where I'm I'm going. And what was the other question? When you say bone, do you mean bone density or you mean joint? I mean bone, like especially the metatarsals. I'm particularly interested in the metatarsals because people fear that you know um, going into mineral shoes, you're gonna because there have been reports of metatarsals being injured, and I think they're injured because. The, the intrinsic muscles are weak, more loading goes to the bone and, and they get injured and, and they're not used to having that load. But if you actually have people go in minimal shoes and gradually work up to it, the bone is going to get stronger. They're going to get loaded more. And I believe if you look at a group of people who have, my hypothesis is that a group of people who've been habituated to minimal shoes will have stronger bones than those who have, and metatarsals in particular, than those who have been habituated to conventional shoes that cushion and support. Yeah. It's often, you know, 
our negativity bias is one of these things that really makes the negative stuff stick out a lot. And I, I think sometimes we lose focus with, it's not about the change being made or the shoe you're wearing, it's about how did you actually get there? And did you do it in a way that aligns with a standard adaptation period for human physiology? Because oftentimes it's not the why, it's how they did it. And if you dive into that, you can dissect away. Well, actually it turns out it's not bad, but it has to be done within these constraints or else it can be bad. Um, um, the I know the other question that you asked me is what would I tell a health professional? Um, we wrote a paper in exercise and sports science reviews. It's a, it's a, a ACSM American uh, college of sports medicine, um, uh, publication. And it, it's, it's a, it was done by a collection of individuals who have done a lot of work in this area. Um, and we wrote a paper about minimal footwear across the lifespan. And so it talks about applications of minimal footwear in kids, in adults, in people with NeoA, in you know, aging individuals. And I think it's a great reference for individuals because it'll have the article cited in there because I think that helps to educate people. I think it's a great place to start. Amazing. Irene, thank you so much for your time and for everything you do and for everything you've done because I, that Footcore article was really... Uh, a really powerful tool to me for me to reach out to other pros and have them view things through the academic lens of research, but also bring them into the realm that feet are important and actually look how much is packed into this small area. And, yeah. you know, the notion that we have these in, insanely high tech, complex, adaptive, dynamic feet. So our shoes can be simple. And the more complexity we put into our shoes, the more it dumbs down these natural, this beautifully natural machinery. Um, and it's more about just getting people really to lean back on first principles of, well, the foot abides by the same principles as any other body part. Let's right. treat it as so and view it as important and warranting of focus and attention because, uh, yeah, I think the, the decade of the foot is probably ahead of us, but it seems like just like the athleisure movement happened like very quick and exponential, it almost seems like now the catch up is athleisure and feet where like we can wear functional, natural things that look good and accept that, well, we don't have to wear these weird things that are deforming and damaging our bodies, but it just has to be an awareness opening. So, um, to everyone listening, thanks for being here. Irene, is there anywhere you'd want to send people on the internet to find more about you or Frankly, if you just type in Irene Davis in Google, you have a, a, a lot to play with, but anything to mention? That's a good start. And, and you can follow me on Twitter, Irene S. Davis. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank that's you, it for Nick. Now. It's been great talking with you and please keep spreading the word. It just, it makes me so happy to hear that, um, that, that you know, something that we put a lot of work into that article and that it, it made a difference for you. And that was the purpose of it. Um, so thank you for those comments and those kind words. And um Keep on spreading the good word. We will. And I'd love to send you, when we have a legitimate first draft of that white paper, I'd love to have as many people it. dissect it and comment on it as possible. And I think if we have this widely available, widely endorsed and, you know, have like a hundred people co if you changed one word in it, you're a co-author and just have like this really, you know, encapsulating consensus document where it doesn't go super deep into all the nuanced, you know, leaves and branches of the tree, but really sets a good trunk for where we can all work off of and, you know, really have a strong foot stomp to say, these first principles are most important. It doesn't tell you how to do things, but it at least makes sure that you have something, uh, you know, that you can anchor yourself to and how you make decisions about how you treat or even from individuals and how you make choices. So, um, thanks again, Irene. Thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you next time.
Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Restore to Explore podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review wherever you're listening. That's the best way to support us and to help us reach more people. If you're after more free TFC education or training, looking for any of our TFC tools, natural footwear discounts, or you want specialized guidance on your foot health journey from a trusted TFC health professional, head to thefootcollective.com. All of the important links are in the show notes of the episode.